0: This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com writingexcuses. Season 18, Episode 16. This
1: is Writing Excuses.
2: Deep Dive, Publishing is Hard by Dong Song.
1: Fifteen minutes long.
2: Because you're in a hurry.
1: And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Dong Wan. I'm Aaron.
3: I'm Dan. And I'm Howard.
2: So this week, it's my turn for the deep dive. Um, I'm not a writer necessarily like everyone else on this podcast. Uh, I'm on the industry side, as we've talked about before. So it was a little bit of like, a, what do we talk about in my case? How do we do this? <laughs> um, and I realized that I thought it might be interesting to dig into a newsletter that I run um, in 2019, Uh, I started a newsletter at that point on Substack that was about my experiences in publishing. Um, You know, it's, it's in part instructive about how the business of publishing works, but really through the lens of here's how I experience it, here's how I think about it, here's how I talk about it. Um, and so I've been doing that on and off for the past several years, um, way longer than I realized. I thought I'd been doing two years, but 2019 is not two years ago. Um, <laughs> and so I wanted to have it featured on the podcast for us to talk a little bit as a way to understand how I think about publishing, what perspective I'm bringing to the pod, and, you know, really kind of dig into some of the uh, tricky issues that i like to tackle there.
3: Um a couple of things, uh, Dong Wan, when we do these deep dives, often we put your feet to the fire and ask <laughs> you, you know, how you did things. And also, um, when you say, I'm not a writer like these other people, after having read several installments of Publishing is Hard, you're a writer
4: yeah well, I, mean, I was going to say the same thing. Maybe not an author, but a very no, good writer. I,
1: and again, we're we're going to totally digress on this. The reason I'm digressing on this is because I know that we have listeners out there who are nonfiction writers. And I want to remind them that they are writers, just like Dong Wan is a writer. It doesn't have to be fiction to be writing. And you're I po- will
2: back up and say I'm not a novelist and don't <laughs> write books. Very, very <laughs> nice. Because I completely agree with everything. Uh, what everybody's saying. And I will say I'm a writer in this regard, which was having to go back and read things I had published several years ago was truly agonizing, and I do not understand how y'all do this on a regular basis.
3: And see, that brings me to the third part of this tripartite thing of mine, which is now that we've established that you are one of us as a writer, (laughs) the first question I have to ask you is, where do you get your ideas? (laughs) (laughs) Suffering and trauma, Howard. (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, I, I get the
2: con- the ideas for what I talk about basically by whatever it is I'm thinking about um, in what I'm dealing with my day-to-day job, right? So what issues are coming up on my inbox? What am I seeing people talk about on social media? What huge kerfuffle is happening in publishing that's in Publishers Weekly this week? All those things are things that I start thinking about. And then, you know, often what happens is I'll see a bad take, I'll see somebody... Interpret something that somebody said as part of a testimony or as part of an article, and I'll be like, wait, people don't understand this the way that I understand it. Writers are seeing things happening in the industry, and they don't have my 17, 18 years of experience of you know, working inside the sausage factory. Are there things I can explain about this? Are there ways I can illuminate some of what the logic behind what looks like a crazy decision is? And you know, how people might approach it in a way that makes life a little bit more navigable for those of us in the industry, for those of us, you know, participating from the other side as writers and, and people looking to get published. So.
1: The, one of the things that you just said uh, is, is a question that I, I'm curious about. You, you talked about seeing a, seeing a hot take and you're like, well, that's not. <laughs> when, you're, when you're writing, who are you writing for? Are you writing for, uh, for writers you know, for the the, uh, the, the young up-and-comers, the, mm-hmm. or are you writing for fellow industry peers to be like, hey, folks, trying to get your—or does it depend?
2: The conceit of the newsletter is that I'm writing for other people in the industry. The conceit is this isn't a newsletter for writers. It's a newsletter for people in publishing, people who are looking to talk about publishing. In practice— I know most of who's reading it are writers, even though every time I publish, one, I get lots of emails from friends in the industry or colleagues or whatever. I think it really does resonate with people who work in publishing, but I also recognize that that's a very tiny population, and therefore most of the people reading it are people who want to be who want to be published, who are either people who have books out or are aspiring published authors, whatever it happens to be. So there's a little bit of a trick that I have to pull that I'm writing for other peers when I think about it, but then I also need to adjust what I'm saying so that it lands for people who aren't in the industry in the same way and therefore may not have all the same, I don't know, internal defenses and and understandings of how the business works. Because, you know, one of the things I want to do is make publishing legible to people who aren't in it. And one of the ways it's illegible is that, It's a tough business, and we talk about things that are very important to people, about their art, about their craft, in ways that can be very blunt and are fundamentally about profit and money because publishing is a business, right? And so finding ways to talk about those things without unduly traumatizing my audience (laughs) or discouraging people. The last thing I want people to do is read this and feel like, oh, I can't succeed then. I can't publish. I shouldn't be trying to do this you know, that's my worst case scenario. So how do I talk about difficult experiences in a way that has enough accessibility and empathy for the audience that I can sort of navigate that balance? So it's, it's an ongoing conversation in my head. It's, it's a very, very, very good question.
1: Uh, it seems like that's a very applicable thing then to, to write for one audience and then edit to broaden it.
2: Exactly. I think that's a thing that a lot of people can incorporate into their process, right? So my first drafts, often I have to be like, ooh, I can't say that. That's too harsh. That's that's an inside thought, right? How do I edit that to be for a broad audience?
3: There's an entire group of uh, writers, communicators out there facing the same problem, and that's the Scicom community, where they are writing from the standpoint of scientists, but trying to write to everybody else. Exactly. And they need to make it understandable, but they need to not dumb it down. They need to deliver the bad climate news but they need to not send us into a panic and make us not care anymore. It's a fine line to walk.
2: It is. Um, I feel like it's a very flattering comparison to make. And uh, I think on that note, let's uh, pause for our thing of the
5: week.
2: Uh, It's a podcast called Friends at the Table. It's an actual play role-playing podcast that is one of my very favorite things on the internet. Um, The previous season of this, I think I broadly declared on Twitter that it was my favorite piece of media that year, and I still stand by that. Um, They just launched a new season of the podcast called Palisade. That's a science fiction story um, about a planet— uh, under attack by sort of invading forces um, it's a story that is about revolution it's a story about resistance and it's a story about giant robots um, it is some of the most intricate fascinating world building i've ever seen with fantastic improvisational play um, i cannot recommend friends of the table highly enough and now is a great time to jump in as they just launched their new season
1: i have a question About publishing is hard, which is that one of the things that I love about it is how much personality and like personal story you weave in there. So you're doing the talking about the industry, but you're also talking about yourself. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering how you decide how much of yourself to kind of put in there. You know what I mean? What to share with us when you're sharing all this other information.
2: Yeah, it's a tricky question. You know, I think for me, making it personal is very important. you know we'll talk about this more in a future episode but i don't want to be someone standing on a hill didactically telling you this is how publishing should be this is the only way to succeed this is you know my 10 rules for success that's not the kind of thing i'm trying to do and so for me rooting it in my own sub- subjectivity rooting it in my experience feels really important to me right so what i want to be doing is telling personal stories i want to tell you about stuff i went through but that's complicated because I can't talk about client stuff in a direct way, right? I can't expose whatever's going on with the particular writers I work with. A lot of that is confidential. And also, you know, my job as a literary agent is always to be hyping up my clients, right? So you don't want to necessarily air people's dirty business, right? Um, so it's a, it's a delicate balancing act. I am often talking about personal experiences, but i will have to be a little vague or elude, or blend a few things into one scenario. So I try to make sure that the emotional co- core of it is very personal and very honest while having to elide some factual details and be a little slippery about what exactly is what. Because I never want things to be mapped from one thing I write about to a situation that affected somebody else.
1: Yeah, I find that a lot of times when talking about issues is that if you can depersonalize it uh, or decouple it, as you say, from mm-hmm. from you know a specific incident, that it becomes easier for people to apply it.
0: Exactly. At the
1: same time, the more specific you are, the easier it is for people to internalize it because we learn from story.
4: So this leads into another question I had, which is, uh take take us behind the scenes a little bit um, how do you decide what are the things that you want to write? Do you have a schedule? do you just have some burr under your saddle that eventually turns into an essay um, how, how does
2: the how do these topics get formed? Anyone who has subscribed to my newsletter is very aware that it is a very irregular uh, event uh, I'm not on a regular schedule it's not monthly it's not weekly. There are gaps between when I publish things. um, And that is somewhat deliberate, you know. Um, But it's because I don't have a schedule. I don't have a plan. What I'm looking for is when do I get a burr under my saddle? I think that's it exactly. When does something get stuck in my head in a way of like, oh, wait, I have something to say about this. And sometimes that's I watch a TV show and they did a cool thing and I want to talk about that thing. Sometimes that's somebody's having a fight on Twitter and I'm like, I have thoughts about that, but I'm going to let that cool off a bit before I share my thoughts because I don't want to contribute to the discourse, but I do have insights that I think might be helpful to people, hopefully. Um so it, it's it's kind of all over the place. Um I, I am not I'm I'm not much of an advanced planner when it comes to the newsletter. I like to go a little bit more off the cuff than that. Um uh but yeah.
3: Do you have a a file of, you know, draft essays a, a boneyard of, of mm-hmm. things where you're like, oh, now I'm ready to finish this essay and I will release it to the world. You know, I did. And then
2: about two months ago, I went through and deleted all of them because I looked at all of them. I was like, I don't want to talk about any of this anymore. <laughs> you know, the, the moment had passed for me, right? Um and a piece I think of me just died inside.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Your boneyard? Those were yeah. the
2: words. They they are words, but there's always more words and there's always more ideas, right? I think that's one thing. I encourage people to save their stuff. Yeah. Go back to what's in the chest. Go back and see what's in that desk drawer. But also, don't be afraid of throwing stuff out. You will have more ideas. More stuff will happen. And you know, even as I was trying to pick out newsletters to talk about for the podcast, I was going through some of it. I don't necessarily agree with everything I said before. I was surprised actually by how much I was like, "Oh, I still vibe with this. I still, you know, stand by what I said then, even if I would change a couple things here or there." But you know, an idea that I had for a newsletter eight months ago that I was like, I'm not interested enough to finish this. I'm happy to let that go by the wayside, and maybe something similar will occur to me again in six months from now, and I'll do it then, you know?
1: Yeah, I find that that's true for me with a lot of things, that there's the, you know, the person who started that, that original thing is not the same person that is sitting down to, to write it Exactly. Now. And it's, unless I have a new spin on something, I used to plug every day and talk about stuff. And, and I would bank things where I'd like write several things in a day. And I don't understand how I did that, mm-hmm. A. Um, but also frequently I would come back to something and be like, I don't have no connection to mm-hmm. this. That was a different person who wrote it.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, sometimes I think, oh, maybe I'd have more subscribers. Maybe I'd grow the audience more. Those kind of things, if I did have that bank of more regular content to tap into. But it's also just not the kind of project I'm doing. I'm doing this as much for my own interest and amusement as for anything else. There is a paid tier to the newsletter, but all the content is free. Um, Anyone can read any of the issues. The paid thing is almost more of a tip jar of like, do you like what I'm doing? Do you want to support it? Um, I started doing Twitch streams and bringing uh, guests on, and those guests are paid roles. And, you know, that's kind of what the subscribers go to, is just making it so that it's worth it for me to spend time on this and to bring in some guests and things like that. But for me, because it's free, I feel comfortable posting stuff when I want to post stuff, when it feels relevant to me.
4: Okay, I want to dig into this a little bit. Um Let's talk about what you think the newsletter has done for you. Clearly, it's a thing that seems primarily designed to give back a little bit. Uh, You love the industry. You love working in it. You want to talk about it. You want to help people out. Um, But at the same time, a really common piece of advice we hear is, you know, authors, get a newsletter. Um, You're not exactly in that position, Mm -hmm. but what are the ways in which you think running this newsletter— has benefited you or your career?
2: It's a brand building exercise for me, and it—you know—the revenue from it is nice. It's a little bonus. Um, the educational component is a lot of the emotional and investment in it. the 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 professional reasons for doing it are: is it does build my brand? Mm-hmm. Um, writers get to see this is how I do business. This is how I think. This is how I think about the industry. Does that make sense to me? Does that seem like someone I want to work with? Right? It's a way for writers to sort of audition me a little bit before working with me, if they like my ethics, if they like my perspective, if they like my view of how to be in this business, that's very important to me. Um, It's also marketing for me towards publishers, right? So a lot of editors read my newsletter. I hear from them. I get lovely messages from them. And, you know, those are people who want to work with me, who they think of me positively when one of my manuscripts lands in their inbox. Um, So... it, it It sets me up in a number of ways. It lets me have a brand in a way that was more sustainable and clearer and more fun to do than Twitter was. I mean, twitter is is a mess in a lot of ways. So uh, the newsletter let me talk about things at, at length in ways that let me be much more clear about who I am and what I stand for.
1: This brings me back to something that both you and Mayor Robinette said earlier, which is that you change as a person and what you believe changes. So if part of it is branding yourself, how do you like square that with the fact that you may be a different person now than the brand that you established maybe a year ago or two, three years ago?
2: I mean, like I literally have a different gender than when I started this uh, newsletter, <laughs> you know? Like some of these old ones, I was like, I don't use that pronoun anymore. What's that doing here? You know, like, yeah, I, I've changed a lot. And um, I certainly don't have the perspective in this business that I did when I started, much less five years ago, much less probably last year. It's a business that evolves Publishing is so slow in certain ways, but how we see content, how we see our roles in it, what are, you know, I mean, I have a lot of thoughts about workers' rights in the industry. And, you know, HarperCollins had that massive strike last year, which concluded positively they got a lot of what they wanted. And, like, that has absolutely informed my thoughts about, like, how do we resolve a lot of the issues in publishing in the industry? It's like, well... I was pro-union before, but boy, am I pro-union now in terms of publishing workers, in terms of younger editors and assistants and people coming up. How much better would this industry be if we had stronger labor rights and relations, right? You know, I'm not sure all of my publisher friends would look, like to hear that from <laughs> me, especially those in more senior positions. But, you know, um, our thoughts and things do evolve. Um, it was interesting to go back into the archive and see what I still said about and what I didn't. Um, but I think, it's a living. The thing about a newsletter is it's a it's a living document. It's not I wrote this and this was my opinion and it's calcified in a certain way. Um, and I hope people can see that and understand that. Um, I haven't really gone through and pruned old things I don't necessarily stand by anymore. But there's nothing in there where I was like, wow, I said something. I was way out of pocket on that one. <laughs> but you know, it's it's subtler than that. I think. Yeah, um, I, I, I would say in a lot of ways. The brand you are
4: building here is less about the specific insights and more about your style of thinking and analyzing mm. things. The way in which you present things rather than the specifics that you yeah. present. Yeah,
1: I That's- also love the, them because the, the newsletters sound like you. <laughs> like, like the one that we, uh, we were reading specifically for this, um, I, I saw you give that keynote speech. Right. And, I'm, and I'm like, oh, yeah, no, this is exactly your rhythm and inflections. And then subsequent ones, I'm like, oh, yeah, no, this is like <laughs> sitting down to have a conversation.
2: My newsletters are profoundly ungrammatical, which is very funny. And I use repetition a lot in them stylistically. And it's because that is how I talk, especially when I'm lecturing, especially when I'm like speaking in front of a crowd um, or even on the pod or whatever. So, yeah, it, it's nice to hear that it is reflective of, of how I think and talk so much.
3: I want to circle back to something you said earlier, which uh, that at at risk of at at risk of uh, unduly waiting. This this might be a good point upon which to close, and that is that when you said you have friends who are editors who read this and who like what you say, mm-hmm. if you are a writer, you want an agent who is friends with a lot of editors because what you are paying the agent for is to put your work in front of as many editors as possible, in as positive as, a light as possible, to put it in front of the right editors. Mm-hmm. And that is, I mean, that's, that's the bread and butter of the mm-hmm. job that you really do. And the fact that this newsletter is, is getting you more attention from editors— is good for your clients, Mm -hmm. present and future.
2: Well, and one thing is I used to be on that side of the table. I I was an editor at Big Five House. I have a lot of understanding and empathy of what they go through. And so I think my newsletter is a little bit of framing that as well. I want to be clear, though, that there are other ways to be an agent, right? There's a mode of agenting that is much more antagonistic and much more hostile to the publisher that— isn't necessarily a bad way to go about it, right? They get projects because they're big projects, because they're big agents. It's a different way of interacting. It's, it's more old school, quite frankly. Um, it can also be really effective. It's not how I do business. It's not just who I am as a person. Um, and so part of me doing the newsletter is making clear this is my approach. Not that I think other approaches are wrong. It's not how I want to do things. But um, but yeah, again, it's, it's really a way for me to express to the world, whether that's writers, whether that's my peers, whether that's people I want to work with, um, who I am as a person and how I want to be doing business. Um, So thank you for uh, taking the time with me to dive into talking about how publishing is hard. Um, Dan, I believe you have our homework.
4: Yeah, we have actually a two-part homework for you today, dear listener. Uh, We want you to subscribe to a couple of newsletters. Uh, They're a very valuable thing. They're common in the industry. Uh, We want you to seek out two with the following criteria. Number one, find a creator that you really like who has a newsletter and subscribe to it. Uh, Number two, possibly and maybe ideally with that same creator, find a newsletter that person subscribes to and subscribe to it as well. Because then you get a sense not only of what they are putting out into the world, but what they are absorbing. What the creators you love are reading and interacting with.
1: In the next episode of Writing Excuses, we'll talk about branding, personal identity, and why Dolly Parton can never have a bad day. Until then, you're out of excuses. Now go write. Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, Dan Wells, and Howard Taylor. This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and produced by Emma Reynolds. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com. If you
0: aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long standing and respected website, magazine archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror.